0: philanthropy as a sector exists because of capitalism and the accumulation
1: of wealth in the first place. There's no
2: such thing as making wealth that isn't part of a community. Why I was so committed to nonprofits or NEA or funding for the arts is because then people do not have to be dependent on only the wealthy. Still, at the end of the
3: day, you fighting for your work, which we fight for our work in all sorts of other ways. Art and money and
4: dance and money and what is the right thing to do with that when the system's so fucked up? Are you for sale?
5: Hi, my name is Shannon Stewart. I live in New Orleans, otherwise known as Bulbancha. After... Many years of living in a place that only had small grants and also a very high cost of living, I ended up needing to relocate to a place that I could afford. But there's no support for dance makers here, so it's complicated. I get invited to make and share things often, and it frequently entails a really small commission. For example, I'm currently working on an evening-length premiere for a actual presenter, and it is for a $1,000 uh, to be spent over three years. That money is supposed to be leveraged to get all the other funding that's out there, and although I apply to all the things, I haven't ever landed a big one. I have also crowdsourced, I've held fundraising events, I have stupidly used my student loans to pay collaborators, and lately I've just been making very minimal work that I can pay for by living cheaply, saving a little bit of money, and then making what I can. The side hustles have included being a professional dance party starter at events, polishing wood in a giant mansion for a year, dancing in music videos, being an adjunct professor, cleaning houses and coffee shops, teaching dance to folks with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, working part of the year in Europe and squirreling away actual artist and teaching fees, using the aforementioned student loan money to get a certification that has paid my bills hand over fist more than my advanced degree. And with the most conflict I have been an arts administrator, where I can be given a stable ongoing salary, benefits, and opportunities for professional growth, failure sometimes. And collaboration, ostensibly in service to artists that get to enjoy none of these benefits themselves. Abolish the foundation, tax shelter, paternalistic, philanthropic grant maker bullshit, give folks a basic income, health care, daycare, elder care, and education, and put a maximum income limit in place. And long live the NAT ministry. Thanks for this opportunity to get that off my chest.
4: You hear it, right? The frustration, the exhaustion, the anger, the range of jobs that have been part of the financial picture. Also, the tenacity, the desire to continue, a drive that's born of both commitment to the work and economic precarity, and the desire to see a different world put into place. It's what dance artists do. Or maybe it's better to say, it's what dance artists are forced to do. Nobody asked us if these were the conditions we wanted. Hello, it's me, Gail Gutierrez, and this is Are You For Sale?, a podcast where we examine the ethical entanglement between money and dance making. Thank you for tuning in, and remember, I'm not an expert, I'm just the person foolish enough to speak out. We're at episode six. Wow! Today's episode is called Beg, Borrow, Steal, Back, How Dance Artists in the U.S. Fund Their Work. We'll be hearing from a variety of dance artists from around the area currently referred to as the United States. Some folks I interviewed and some folks responded to our call for messages via our email or voicemail number, which is what you heard at the beginning just now. Before we go further, though, I want to acknowledge how talking about money brings up a lot of stuff for folks. It can bring up feelings of vulnerability, shame, anger, desperation, and sometimes when you're able to access funds for your work, feelings of gratitude, excitement, or just simply relief. I received a bunch of messages from artists who, after hearing last week's episode and some of the numbers that artists elsewhere get access to, were just flabbergasted at the contrast with how little we have to work with here. I don't really have any easy responses for that confusion and frustration other than to say, I hear you and I feel you. It's part of why I'm doing this podcast. I hope that today's episode helps you feel connected to others and that it provides some reassurance that you're not alone in this. But I also hope that it's a wake-up call for the field because we have to do better by our artists. In the last episode, we heard a lot about government funding. Today, you'll notice the opposite. The artists will rarely reference government funding for their work because that's not what they're receiving. Now, that's partly a consequence of who I spoke to, Remember this is not a comprehensive study of arts funding, but I still think that it offers a picture of the landscape dance artists working here are collectively navigating.
0: Oh my God, so fucking hard. So fucking hard. (laughs) I think that's like one of the hardest things that I have done because
4: that's Antonio and, Ramos.
0: You want my whole name? Jose Antonio Ramos Trinidad.
4: And this is- Antonio is a queer Puerto Rican artist and massage therapist living in Lenape Hooking, in an area currently referred to as Brooklyn. He is one of the most amazing, generous, and funny people I've ever met. Here he's talking about what it was like to do a Kickstarter.
0: Man, they're nerve-wracking. Just thinking about that you just had that money to, in order to make things happen. One of them... I made it, but I made it because I had to ask money for a friend to pay me on front. And then, but then I have to pay him everything back. So I have to work my ass off to like you know, make $5,000 and just give it to this person. So it's really nerve-wracking. It's,
4: and it was happening while you were making the piece.
0: And it was happening while I was making
4: the piece. So uh, my health <laughs> at
0: the end I was like,
4: what the fuck? Yeah, so right off the bat, we're really experiencing the weather of the scene today. The variety of people, the variety of experiences. You may end up getting a sense of ricochet. If at any point you feel confused, wonder what the through line is, or where is the answer key to this episode, great. Because this episode is the micro of the macro. Like the systems we navigate in order to try and make work, this episode is not neat, and there is no clear trajectory. Hello. Hello. Lionel? Hi, this is Kate Watson Wallace. Here are the ways I've supported my work over the years. Stripping slash sex work, best funding source yet to date, by the way. Engaging in barter and feminist care centered economies. Living in a place that's cheaper with more resources, Philly. Waitressing slash barista work, grants, Indiegogo slash Kickstarter, individual donors. Partner with a larger income who could help split costs like rent, bills, and pay for random things, going out to eat, etc. Commercial work that subsidizes experimental work. COVID emergency grants right now. Unemployment right now. Sublet or Airbnb income. This one is huge and had allowed me time and space to actually make art. Currently looking into OnlyFans or a subscription service. All right, who else are we talking to?
6: My name is Rosie Herrera. Rosie is Cuban-American
4: and lives on Seminole, Tequesta, and Taino land in South Florida, currently known as
3: Miami Beach, which is amazing. Amara Tabor-Smith.
4: Amara is a Black queer artist situated on
3: Chin unseated Lashon Ohlone Territory, a.k.a. Oakland, California.
4: She's also an artist-in-residence at Stanford University. And then the one and only Cynthia Oliver a Black Caribbean artist who lived in New York in the 80s and 90s, but who now lives in Kickapoo, Mia Mia, Ochechi Shakaween, and Peoria land, currently referred to as Urbana Champagne, where she is a professor at the University of Illinois. As we dove into talking about money, I joked to Cynthia that I needed to make a separate podcast where we only talk about art. And she responded... Well, it's interesting
1: that you would say that, because, you know, we often divorce the two, mm. and they're not divorced. And you know it, it becomes the hard thing to talk about, but it is, it is integral to how we, it's how we live. So it, it is also an integral part of how we make. And I think to not talk about it is doing ourselves a
4: disservice. I fully agree. I asked everyone what their general feelings are when thinking about the process of raising funds for their work. We'll hear from Amara and then Antonio.
3: It's exhausting. I mean, it's challenging. It brings up a lot of emotions. It brings up scarcity. It brings up unworthiness and, you know, who's worthy, who's not worthy, that it comes down to that there isn't equity in the arts. There isn't value for the arts in this culture. So it then pits us against each other, even if that's not our nature. We spend a lot of time having to be a circle that's trying to fit inside of a square and then say, this is why <laughs> we need to be in this square. So it, it brings up a lot of emotions. Uh, I'm also grateful for when I've gotten funding, no doubt, but I think that the the culture of funding inside of our society is not healthy.
0: I mean, we are in such an uncertain place right now as a dancer, artist. period where I feel like that we're one of the least supported professions in America. And even more, when you do experimental work, I feel like it's very conservative place and the people who are the most supported in the same place, in the same category are like ballet companies or companies that are like, even in the modern world, they have like the super contemporary ones who just follow the rule. And I feel like in experimental land, you're trying to break the rules constantly.
4: Yeah, so there's our first conundrum, right? How do you, as a rule breaker, engage with a funding system that requires you to follow the rules? Rosie, who's been showing her work for over 13 years, shared that she had held her first fundraiser only just last year. I asked her how it went.
6: I don't know if it's like the first generation, like immigrant thing, but I have a really hard time asking for help and I'm not very articulate in my personal life or my professional life in expressing when I need help. So it was a challenge for me, a challenge that I met with how I always meet things that are uncomfortable for me with a lot of humor to sort of kind of soften the ask.
4: Her dad fled Cuba. Her mom grew up in the South Bronx. And the challenging circumstances they had shaped her worldview.
6: The values that they imparted on me of like self-sufficiency and actually the emotional oppressive nature of being tough in general. It's something that I've been unpacking for a really long time. But, you know, those were the values that really worked and was helpful for them to survive their own lives. And so I was taught that. And it has been very useful for me. And then in other ways, I'm learning how that's a culture too, the culture of toughness and not asking for help.
4: When I asked Cynthia what her general feelings were about raising funds for her work, she provided a historical context.
1: It's horrifying and a pain in the ass, but it's a reality. Because of my experience as a young artist and working for a variety of people who who succumbed to not talking about it or would talk about it sort of painfully at the end of something or make certain kind of promises about it, that they couldn't really keep. It was an embarrassing moment. You know, it was uncomfortable. It was like, well, I don't have any money or I can pay you transportation or I can pay you for the performance, but I can't pay you for the rehearsal. I can pay you, you know, one or the other or I can maybe give you $50 a week, <laughs> whatever it was that folks could work out, it was sort of the, the last thing that was kind of really addressed. What I would prefer, of course, were those folks who just said it. What was difficult were the ones who didn't say it, and then you had to ask.
4: And how were the dancers talking about it?
1: In some situations, it was, you know, so if it were answered at the end of the, the information session, the invitation moment, then, you know, people would go away and in the dressing room would be like, I'm sorry, I can't do this. Or, you know, I'll do this and make it work with with this other gig that I'm working. Or there were also those situations where folks would offer to talk to each one of us individually about money. And that was really uncomfortable because that made it seem as though it was something that was secret. And we weren't supposed to then talk to each other about it, which of course people did. And, you know, so then, you know, there was a bit of a kind of grousing about like, why were we talked about it separately? Was somebody trying to get something over on us? That labor remuneration exchange was a fraught one. And it was just hard to determine like, what is, what is a reasonable rate? You know, are we being greedy by asking for X amount of money just so that we don't have to do an additional gig so that we can afford to dance with someone?
4: This then shaped how she approached the conversation about money when she started making her work. I was like,
1: okay, if I ever make work, I, one, I will not make something with other people in it unless I can pay them. I will never be able to pay them what they're worth, but I can always be honest about what I can afford to pay them and what I will try to pay them if I manage to access more
4: My name is Emily Mast and I'm what my daughter calls a performancer. I'm based in LA and am a visual artist who has been making live performances since 2006. I tend to produce everything myself, which means that I conceive of an idea and juggle wearing the following hats. Writer, director, casting agent, choreographer, costume designer, prop designer, prop maker, set designer, builder, dramaturg, translator, PR person, social media liaison, archivist, etc. I collaborate with musicians and lighting designers and often get help from volunteer interns who are more capable than myself. To fund these projects, I apply for grants. Thankfully, I've received many. Of course, I've also received many rejection letters. I also get commissions, mostly from European institutions. Unfortunately, COVID interrupted my commission momentum considerably. And then I collaged together a complex quilt of day jobs. I'm a freelance interior designer, a freelance creative director, a freelance art advisor, a tutor, an occasional adjunct teacher, and every once in a blue moon I sell my work to an institution. I'm also a mom, but that kind of labor has no value in this country. Alas, I am not well rested. I work all the time. And I have no retirement plan. But somehow, perhaps stupidly, I have more faith in art than in capitalism. I wanted to know how our interviewees got it going with their work, like at the beginning.
6: At the very beginning, it was like, you know, that whole artist barter system. Like, if you do my piece, I'll choreograph your quince. And like, we're going to rehearse at my dad's house. And I'll do, you know, like it was a, a trading system. In Miami, there wasn't really sort of like structures for like how to run a company, except for Miami City Ballet. There's amazing people that have had companies, but there wasn't really like a sort of structure to kind of click into. So I was kind of inventing things as I went along. I was very lucky at the beginning to receive some commissioning uh, funding from um, amazing organizations like the Miami Light Project, the Asian Arts Center and the American Dance Festival.
4: In case you didn't catch it, those first two organizations Rosie mentioned are the Miami Light Project and the Adrian Arsht Center.
6: And so that money went to paying the artists that were rehearsing. And then I paid myself with my own work as a cabaret and burlesque artist. So it was kind of separate. At that time, Miami is such an incredibly supportive community. I wasn't paying for rehearsal space at all. And so that money can stretch out a lot further when you don't have to pay for rehearsal space.
4: That way of working, where any income that comes in goes to support her company, but she pays herself through other work like cabaret or burlesque projects, that's been an ongoing theme in Rosie's career. And it's a familiar story for many of us. But now, let's hear about how Cynthia got it going at the beginning of her choreographic career.
1: My first couple of pieces were solos, so I didn't have to pay anybody. But when I started to work with other people, one of the first things I got was a space grant. They couldn't give me money but they gave me space and that was huge and so then i could fundraise the Huffin foundation i remember was one of my first ones and that was like 500 dollars. and i applied like crazy for everything that was available at a certain level and then i don't know if you remember but you and i had a conversation many many years ago that i have never forgotten and it always makes me laugh because i was encouraged by a fan and a supporter who said you know you need to reach out to your contacts and send an ask letter. And I was horrified by the idea of asking anybody for money. But I did, I, you know, with their encouragement, I did, I sent out an actual hard copy letter in an envelope with a stamp and all that. And I was surprised at how much money came back, you know, from, and it was, you know, those days, it was what we now call crowdsourcing. But, you know, somebody, how many people sent $10 or $25 or whatever. And I made a good chunk of money so that I could pay people a reasonable amount but the, our conversation my conversation with you was I think you had sent out a similar thing and I sent you like $25 and you wrote back and we were like girl this is the same $25 that's rolling around the dancing community when everybody anybody needs something we all send it this $25 around and I hollered because you know it's true
4: I'm pretty sure it's my turn now to donate those $25 back to you, Cynthia. But I want to take a moment and just ask you, did you catch how Cynthia said that at the beginning when she was making solos, she didn't have to pay anybody? Cynthia, you are somebody! I mean, I know she knows that, but I think it's a telling detail, and I know I've said the same thing when I'm making solo work. So if there's maybe one through line we can tease out by now, it's that the person making the work usually pays themselves last, if at all. Antonio lays out a complex mix of how making his work has interacted with his health on multiple levels.
0: For like 10 years or more, I felt like I was really self-producing myself. Pierce and I would get very small grants, but everything went from my massage work pretty much. And I took advantage of being supported by the government when I got really sick in 2004. I was HIV positive since 1986. And then in 2004, I got diagnosed with AIDS. So I had a fucking horrible time trying to rehab from that, but I got sustainability from the governments. I got better within three to five years. And then I was like, okay, I'm gonna take a break from like working so hard and then working under the table to make money to pay actually my dancers. So, that was like my main income. And what has happened is like, as the COVID came and attacked everybody, all my massage jobs, were just like nada, you know, so I, I was put in that position of like, okay, whatever I make is to sustain myself. Within that period of time, I was like, fuck, I really need to change my way of producing myself.
4: Yeah, so that's one of the rare instances we'll hear today of useful government subsidy, although in Antonio's case, it's health-related, not arts funding-related. Amara talks about how one of the challenges of seeking grant support is that her art-making process and rhythm doesn't fall easily into the structures that are set up for funding.
3: My work is really, it is really (laughs) spirit-driven. And as such, sometimes... I get the call so to speak you know i get the call and then it's like oh i gotta do this i gotta do this and then i'll usually start to look for funding to support that and sometimes i can wait but sometimes i cannot like i have to be in the process the only thing is like sometimes i get a call but the call is not clear so then I don't know, like I'm gonna be looking for money, but you know, they're gonna ask all these things, you know, what, what's your intended outcome? And I'm like, I don't know, they calling me, but they ain't giving me instructions yet. <laughs> but we gonna do something. And here's some work samples of other things that I did in the dark. So maybe you'll trust me and maybe you won't. Over time, I have to say, I've, I've become more transparent around that. This is what I know, and there are a whole lot of things I don't know. And, you know, I don't do that all the time because, you know, then that limits your chances to get funding.
4: Sometimes scale works in her favor, though.
3: I teach at a university, so there are times when I'm like, oh, I can just focus on finding money for just my artists because I'm only working with two or three people. And so I can find resources while we seek more funding to really hold the development of the work.
4: It's a variation on the thought, but that kind of unknown space that Amara is talking about feels related to something that Cynthia brought up. She tells the story of coming to one of her mentors with a choreographic conceptual challenge she was facing in her work. I
1: remember this person saying to me, you need to get back in the studio and you need to just get in there daily and get your practice. And I thought about the absurdity of that as a young artist who didn't have the money to pay for studio space. Now, it was one thing when I got that that space grant, but on a daily basis, on the regular, many young artists don't have space, and so my conceptual framework had to be developed virtually. I have that word now; I didn't have it then. So as I'm walking down the street, I'm you know I'm in Soho, getting ready to go to rehearsal. I'm doing you know I'm on the subway. I'm, I had to operate in a virtual space all the time. The thought processes that had to take place outside of an actual space because I didn't have the capital to actually work in a real space is significant.
4: I really appreciated hearing that. When I moved to New York, I had a live workspace in Bushwick, Brooklyn for eight years. I never had to worry about booking rehearsal space. I could go into the studio pretty much whenever I wanted to and dance, or just lay around and daydream but then we were evicted in 2005. Bushwick basically became Soho, and I've never had regular studio space since then. A couple of years ago, I had a three week lockout residency. Lockout just means that you can leave your stuff there and no one else besides you is using the space. And I used my time in that studio to work on two different performances, record choral music for one of my shows, and I even turned it into a fabrication studio for part of the time to make set pieces. The whole time I wondered, what would my work have become or what would it look like if I had a studio like that? Again, here, where I live in New York, all year round.
2: Hi, my name is Jesse Young. I'm calling from the unceded land of the Lenape people, otherwise known as Brooklyn. I am supporting my work in making right now 100% from my I used to divide the way that I made income into what area of my life it went into. So Pilates teaching supports my rent, groceries, and then any money I make from a dance gig goes back to a dance operation. With any kind of like project or lump sum that goes into an area that is put toward paying dancers and renting for future space and um, project-related stuff, once all that money is in a bank account. I forget which goes to which, and then I end up spending more money on the dance projects and then not having enough money for the other things. So I'm working on getting more fluent in that, but currently that's how I am supporting my work.
4: So Jessie tries to keep her teaching income separate to pay for her life. Remember how Rosie also divided her income? And then she takes what she's paid from one dance gig and cycles it back into her own creative process and artist fees. It's kind of like that $25 Cynthia and I joked about passing around. I support you and you support me, but neither one of us gets significant support from an outside source. And then Jesse talks about how it all gets muddled. I completely identify with that. When I'm experiencing gaps in support, I have to pay my manager for my teaching income. Which begs the question, what kind of administrative support are dance artists able to access for putting money together for their work? I have
6: had that. support in different ways throughout my entire career. You know, I had an amazing agent named Pam Green, who sort of acts as a manager and agent for many years. And I loved working with her. And I've worked with grant writers here and there. I had a company manager for a couple years. We have a great relationship, but she moved. So, yeah, I've been doing kind of everything on my own for a while.
0: I did get some, even though it got kind of messed up. Um, I got into a program with Pentacle.
4: That's a dance service organization here in New York.
0: And it was great. But then it was hard to find the right administrator for me, once again, because they're pretty conservative. And I couldn't find any support who really support my work, my queer experimental shit. It was for almost two years, so I had to change administrator three times during those two years. So by the time somebody gets to know me, I got to move on to the next one and then they will quit. So I feel like I really, I mean, I tap into it, but I really didn't have the chance to go deeply into the administrative
4: work. Antonio also got support for a while through a creative capital program.
0: They show you how to be an entrepreneur with the skills they have as a corporation to bring it an into an, an artist. But they couldn't answer my questions because I'm coming from an individual who is with disability, like trying to survive and keeping their their benefits at the same time that you do this corporate work that it really doesn't work. I mean, at the end, I went out of options and I was like, I don't know what to do. I'm like a little bit
1: lost with this. You know, it's just been me. I love writing. But it's, you know, writing tortures me just like choreography tortures me. I've chosen two areas that torture the hell out of me, and I just figure out how to manage them. I also think of this, that labor, that labor of writing, that labor of finding the money as particularly mine.
4: Cynthia then shares a moment when a colleague stepped in.
1: In recent years, I've had another level of support at. The university. I, there was one professor here who wanted me to apply for certain kinds of grants. Her name was Nancy Abelman. She is no longer with us. She pulled me in and she wanted to hear about my projects. And I sat in an office with her and a woman named Maria Gillombardo. And they listened to me talk about the work and they asked a number of questions. And then I went away and I wrote a proposal and I sent it to them. They asked another series of questions and i rewrite it and I'd send it back to them. And so these two women kept their eyes on, this is the only time that that has ever happened to me. Prior to that, it was really just me writing. But for Virago Mandem-
4: Virago Mandem is a piece Cynthia premiered in 2017.
1: I worked with these women, even though I didn't get the grant that they were trying to help me get, it helped me fine tune my vision and the language in that proposal so that I ended up getting other things.
4: That thing where someone is interested in listening to what you're doing and invested in helping you clarify the language of a project is critical. More often than not, we're stuck in that process by ourselves. Remember how Amara used the word exhausting to describe her general feelings about raising money? I asked her where that exhaustion comes in and how it affects her work.
3: The exhaustion for me is in the writing. I am not confident as a writer and I write my grants and I've gotten better, but I am still not very confident. And it takes me a very long time to Right, And so that time that it takes for that is taking me away from the process. Because as a lot of us know, especially if you're writing your own grants, that's hours and hours. Those are hours that I would rather be in the studio. More recently, I've been able to afford to hire a grant writer, but I need to be in relationship with that person. And I'm not a control freak at all, but I just feel like I have a hard time articulating it. So how are you gonna articulate something that I've had such a hard time articulating? We need to work together. A positive that I will say around it is that it, 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 it has pushed me to be better and to keep working on that fear. But I also still don't wanna be spending all my time writing.
4: A few years ago, I actually made music for one of Antonio Ramos's pieces. And I remember seeing how hard he worked to put money together for that piece.
0: Oh my God, it was just insane. It was just fucking insane because I would just work. Like I would force myself to work not only individually by myself, but to like work with different companies and just work as much as I could within the rehearsal schedule. Sometime I would work, I would do like 10 clients a day or, I mean, it depends where I was just working with. Um, and then manage somehow to be running all over town, either on my bike or public transportation. And it's, I mean, it get to you, because at the end I, I felt like I couldn't really invest as much time and, and energy that I wanted it to be into the performance. But also I will make the money cash and I would just keep uh, pay cash to my performers.
4: Yeah, he would like lay out stacks of bills at the beginning of the week's rehearsals and hand them out to all of the performers.
0: The last couple of years after I was getting like 2018, 2018, I was getting some grants and then I was like, fuck, like, I mean, it's great, but at the same time I have to like think about W2 forms and this and the other. And so it kind of all screwed up <laughs> because I was getting into trouble with the IRS and losing my benefits that I actually lost it this year, unfortunately.
4: Because when he started getting some grants, from a tax perspective, he was now earning too much money to retain his disability benefits. Even though all that grant money, it wasn't all going to him.
0: Exactly. And if I didn't sign up at W2 Forms, I wouldn't get the money. They will not get paid. It made me realize many things. I can't be working like I used to be anymore. That's for sure. It, it was just killing me and it's, it's hard life. And I felt like I had no life. I barely, like made it to see a performance you don't have to make such an effort to put it in balance like what is this and you know making enough money to pay myself and pay others or making enough money to just give it away practically and you know as much as i love my dancers i also realized like how less care i was taking on myself and i'm just Mm -hmm. getting sick a lot and you know when you're immune compromised and just you question that
4: so Let's pause here for a moment and discuss what this money that we're seeking actually pays for. How much does it cost to make a dance? Well, let's start with how long it takes to make a dance. In my experience, it really depends on how an artist works. In the experimental scene, it's pretty common that you work in chunks of time stretched out over longer periods of time. So for example, most of my evening length pieces, and evening length just means a piece that's like 45 minutes or longer, They take about 20 to 25 weeks of rehearsal spread out over the course of about 18 months. I don't work in ballet, but I know that those choreographic working periods are much shorter. Like, you might get three weeks to make a new piece. So, we're going to do a thought experiment where we build a budget for a piece that takes 10 weeks to make. And for this budget, we're going to talk in ideal numbers, mostly. And to do this, I'm going to bring in my manager, who's also the managing producer of this podcast, Michelle Fletcher.
7: Hello. Hello. Okay, let's do this. How many people are in your piece besides you?
4: Let's say four folks.
7: And you're in it too, right?
4: Yep, that seems like a good amount. So
7: how often do you want to rehearse?
4: Let's say that the rehearsals are like five hours long because in an ideal world, you get to go to dance class in the morning or whatever 10 to 12 and then you go to rehearsal like one to six
7: how many days a week
4: five day work week just like the rest of the world how
7: much are you going to pay people
4: what much did i pay last time
7: 25
4: mm, okay well we should be paying at least more than that 30
7: bucks an hour yeah. everyone's getting paid the same including you
4: uh, for this yeah sure okay that's 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 enough right like okay the time has come for us to get it up
7: five performers five hours a day five days a week that means a day of rehearsal costs 750 okay. which means one week of rehearsal costs thirty seven fifty. okay which means that t- Ten weeks of rehearsal with five performers cost $37,500. I think we could do that. Um, We're not done. Oh. What about the lighting designer?
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. A
7: composer? Oh, Is there any yeah. kind of
4: set? I think we're going to like activate sculptures or Options. something. Sure. Or do
7: you want to bring in someone as a dramaturge or an outside eye?
4: Okay, well, what are you trying to say? Like, I have to get someone... Is the composer
7: working alone or with other musicians? Are they performing live?
4: Live. (laughs) You're funny. Okay,
7: I'm just putting down 5K for all that. The set designer probably needs to get materials to make the set with, right? Sure.
4: I don't know. It's like the same amount. 5K. Okay. The lighting designer is going to be super involved, though.
7: Okay, 3K. Are they running any equipment?
4: I mean, they usually do, right?
7: Okay, 2K. Sure. The costume designer needs some kind of budget. It unless everyone's naked well
4: that's definitely cheaper um i don't know $1,500 well
7: okay but they're gonna need to get paid for their work hey,
4: okay so like i don't know $1,500 again Seems kind of low yeah well they're gonna just have to like get stuff from the thrift store we're not gonna like ask them to I thought, show i thought you
7: said this was ideal hey
4: okay $2,000 the
7: dramaturg should be at rehearsals for a pretty decent amount of time right yes
4: sure but like I don't know, like half. Okay,
7: 3,250. Uh-huh. Oh, and me, who's paying me for all well,
4: of this? Well, I mean, I'm paying you, but wait, how much do I pay you?
7: 33 an hour. Okay, that's pretty
4: good. No comment. So, like, five hours a week for like three weeks of work? That's what you're gonna be doing? We're
7: applying for five grants. Do you realize how long that takes?
4: Okay, okay, like 50 hours, so like $1,500. Wait, can I get paid for that? You
7: have to get photos. That's at least 500 yeah,
4: Okay, but did you hear my question about paying me? And you gotta for... videotape it? Oh. Yeah, okay, wait, how much is that? Well,
7: are they editing it too?
4: Yeah, I think so, because my friend said he wasn't going to do that for free anymore. Okay,
7: so that's 2K. Wait,
4: what are we going to rehearse? We only have that one two-week residency. I
7: thought you said this was ideal. Yeah,
4: ideal, sure, but not like delusional. 25
7: hours a week for eight weeks at $15 an hour. Whoa,
4: you found a place that's only $15 an hour? Where are we rehearsing? A walk-in closet? That's
7: $3,000.
4: Okay, so let's see where our budget is now. Add it up.
7: $65,750. Okay.
4: That's not like that much, right?
7: The theater is asking if you have insurance. Do you have insurance? Um, the costume designer needs to order cars for when they come to rehearsal because they have to carry all that shit. Oh. And so do the set and lighting designer. They're going to need a truck. God, a
4: truck. And
7: um, you're going to pay for an interpreter, right? You got all that text, Mr.
4: Interdisciplinary. Yeah. Okay. Of course. I mean, how much is that? Wait, shouldn't the theater pay for that? Now it's being funny. up. Thank you, Michelle. And that was us acting. It was just superb, truly. Well, thank you, Uta. I can tell you love the character. Well, I wouldn't go that far. So that was a crash course in what a budget might look like. There's a bunch of stuff we didn't even factor in, but you see how quickly the numbers add up. And I'll be super transparent and acknowledge that that $25 an hour number that I cited, that's real. That's the most I've ever been able to pay folks for hourly rehearsals. It is not enough.
7: I'm glad you brung it up because I've been dying to talk about it for a fucking hot minute. First of all, a
4: $70,000 project budget may sound like a big number, but when you break it down, you realize that it's really not that much when you're talking about a 10 week rehearsal period and paying upwards of 10 folks. By way of comparison, did you know that the average cost for a 30-second national television commercial is $115,000? So yeah, $70,000, it's still not enough to pay performers what they should be getting paid as experts in their field. But I'm going to guess that there are some dance artists and performance makers out there who are listening to this episode who are now thinking, hey, I'm never going to get $70,000 together for a project. And statistically, sadly, You're probably right, especially given that the highest project grant amount that I know of that you can apply to is $50,000. And that organization only accepts applications for dance based projects every few years, and you can only get it once.
3: I don't ever feel like I've arrived. I know how this funding world works, and you can like receive grants for a period of time and then crickets. And I watch people who I love and admire receive all the grants and fellowships i've received and then be in a place of like i can't get funding so i don't take that for granted tides can turn so i just never want to you know assume anything
4: i asked amara if when she did get support that she applied for did it actually cover the cost of the project
3: i think the complicated nature of that question is the association afforded me other grants that then did. I don't know that I've had, I think with the exception of one grant that I got last year through the Kenneth Rainham Foundation, that grant really did cover a lot, but mostly I'm seeking a lot of different sources. And the thing that we have to be reminded of is with the exception of a few grants, most of them are asking you in the process, who else are you seeking funding from? Because you're not trying to like have us pay for everything. (laughs) That's basically what they're saying. They're like, and what percentage of this grant is supposed to cover your project? Oh, okay, wait. Let's be real about that, you know? So no, (laughs) I mean, by and large, not because they don't, actually seem to want that
4: this idea of the buy-in the idea that one grant will leverage support to get you more grants it's a venture capitalist model really although very little dance funding gets at all close to what vc numbers look like when you put a budget together for an application you write down what money you've secured that you know you're going to get and what money you're hoping to get which includes the money from the funder that that application is going to And like Amara said, it's rare that any one funder allows you to say that their grant will go to pay for the whole project. So you say, yeah, hey, I'm applying for all these other grants and all of these theaters are interested in presenting my work, which, P.S., may or may not be true. But more to the point, you have no idea if you're actually going to get any of those other grants. So... It's this very strange space of concocting fictions for a fantastically ideal future to impress the folks who themselves are the very arbiters of that future.
8: Hey, my name is Tanya Markwart. I go by they, them pronouns. I am calling from Hooking, but I also work on Coast Salish land, colonially known as uh, Brooklyn, New York, and Vancouver, British Columbia. Last year, I was a building manager because I didn't qualify for unemployment, so I took care of a building, and that's how I funded my work. I usually fund it through teaching here in Hoking and I am Super grateful that as a Canadian, I've mostly funded my work through grants through Canada. And I've gotten a couple of grants here, but actually very few and far between. For a long time, I was a grant writer in like different educational and arts institutions. And so I would fund my work that way. And in the past, I've also funded my work by flinging slinging coffee, doing nude modeling, how to BDSM stuff. Yeah, I wish we all had universal income or something like that, that we could all just like do that um, and be able to pay for our teeth getting cleaned. Yeah, I really do wish that.
4: (laughs) Antonio has for years now been applying for pretty much everything out there without much success. I ran through a list of national funding possibilities. Did you apply for MAP? Nada. Did you apply for National Dance Project? I have applied for that. Nothing. Did you apply to the National Association of Latino Arts and Culture? Nada. They're, they're really, really, really conservative. How about Creative Capital?
0: I have. Nada as
4: well. How about the National Endowment for the Arts? Yes, I
0: have. But they're like weird about like, because I don't have anybody producing me somewhere. Is that
4: the one? Yeah, you have to kind you of do you have to someone. have support. Yeah. Okay. What about a fellowship? The Guggenheim Fellowship? I I have applied. Nada. What about one of those nomination-based awards, like the Alpert Award? Yep, that Herb Alpert. Has he been nominated for that? Six, seven times. No luck there either. Then we talked about more local funding possibilities. How about the New York Foundation for the Arts Fellowship?
0: Nada.
4: New York State Council for the Arts?
0: I think probably NESCA got
4: something, like, really super small. He also got some support from the Brooklyn Council on the Arts. It's like $3,000. Once we went through that list, we took a moment.
0: You know, I like when you look at the picture in general. I feel like I should be quitting a long time ago. (laughs) I should have, because it's like so. um, It's frustrating just being in that field for so long and keep reapplying and feeling like you're really not. There's not an audience or there's not a. The conservative people who actually be a little more open to the kind of work I do.
4: Yeah, and that's a lot of unpaid time applying for grants. I'll also add that on paper, those different granting sources, if you do get them, are allegedly supposed to go to different aspects of your artistic life. Income source division yet again! There are project grants that are supposed to be just for your projects. There are fellowships, which are sometimes research-focused or, like awards, they could just provide money for you to live for a while. For example, Amara, Cynthia, and Rosie have all been recipients of the $50,000 United States Artists Fellowship. Theoretically, it's not meant to be used for a project, but...
6: You know, a second ago you mentioned the United States Artist Award, and I have to tell you, every time somebody brings that up, I'm like, I should have bought a house.
4: but it's not enough money to buy a house
6: i know and i live in miami it's like there's not it's not enough money to buy a freaking apartment it's not but i just i you know as i get older and like rents just increase and increase and increase and increase and i keep getting pushed out of every single neighborhood i just like damn really (laughs) I could have, that was the most amount of money I've ever gotten, you know? Like, I'm never gonna get that much money again. I should have, you know, but that money was spread out over many years to help support a, a variety of works that were my heart.
4: I asked the artists how they manage their expectations once they apply for a grant and how they deal with rejection.
6: God, this is such a fucked up thing to say, but the truth is, I just never expect it. I <laughs> just assume that it's not gonna happen. Um, And not because I'm like so, been rejected so many times. I'm just so used to working outside of that grant system that I'm like, I'm I'm making or dreaming in a different way.
1: To this day, I never anticipate that I'm going to get something. And maybe being a young dancer and auditioning teaches you not to get overconfident because of the amount of rejection that, you know, dancers get early on in their careers or, you know, ongoing in their careers. There's never an expectation. There's, a, there's of course the hope that I will get it because I, I'm also not a prolific artist. I'm not one of those people who does a new work every year. Um, that's not how my head works or my life works. So when I have the inspiration and feel strongly about doing something, then I'm hoping that that connects with whatever panels are operating at the time because that's the other reality of it that depending on the panel, you may or may not be the selected artist. So there's never, I never expect. The other thing is I've always thought of myself and I said this to the, to the US artist people, <laughs> I always thought of myself as like a B artist, right? So like they're the A-listers in film and then the B-listers that, and the C-listers and all that. And I always thought of myself as, you know, B or even C level artists. And I was okay. I reconciled myself with like, I'm not going to be one of those people. And they are, you know, they absolutely deserve where they are, but I'm going to just keep toiling away at what I do. There's an um, audience that loves my work and I'm happy to see them. They seem to be happy to see me when I do something. And I'm fine with that. It works in my life in a fine way. The other part of that was that I also elected not to pursue a 501c3 status. I had conversations with a number of people about it because there are certain funding opportunities for folks who choose to do that that the others don't have. As an independent artist, you cannot apply for some things if you don't have that status. But I chose to do that because I did not want to be a business, an official business. I didn't want to have a board that I had to answer to. I didn't want to have workman's compensation that I had to figure out how to pay for, even when we're not working. There are all these complications that I didn't want to have so that when I'm not making a work, I could just let myself rest and recover and regenerate and think toward the future
4: work. When they don't get stuff, do they have any idea why?
6: I have no idea. I have no idea ever. Ever. I ask for feedback and I get really bad feedback usually, which is like wonderful application, great work samples.
4: You didn't get the money.
6: <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming to my party.
4: <laughs> yeah, totally. I was like, we cool. loved it. It was a great project. Sorry I didn't get the money.
6: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were looking for blondes this year. Thank yeah, you. <laughs>
4: Antonio suspects that it has to do with the recurrence of nudity in his work.
0: They're so afraid of nudity. They're afraid of, of people being nude on stage. And it's huge. It's like a huge thing of my work. I mean, and within that, I think the whole body positive is a little bit funky because when they wanted to see somebody nude, they wanted to see specific people who are nude. And, and I'm not drawn by that. I'm drawn more than that the shapes and forms can be so fucking beautiful on stage.
4: But he's guessing though, right? I mean, he's not sure. There have been times when I've been rejected that I've been obsessed with wanting to know why.
1: I don't know. I think that's a fool's errand because unless they tell you, one will never know. And even when they do tell you, generally the field is so competitive that at a certain level, if you have arrived at a certain level in the application process, it becomes an effort by the panel to find the flaws so that they can eliminate as opposed to what will elevate this proposal. And so, you know, well, she didn't talk about, you know, some random something. And so that would be the thing that would knock me out as opposed to someone else appear. Or, you know, she keeps, she doesn't, she keeps spelling that word wrong. For- <laughs> I don't know. I'm making that shit up, but there's some reason they find some reason to eliminate because they have to. And so that I don't know that it would be helpful for me to then, you know, take that to heart to consider for the next time I apply. I mean, the most important thing for me is to be as true to my voice and to my process and to my needs as possible. And if that doesn't align with the institutional mission, then I just have to live with it. And I know that is spoken from a place of that can be considered a place of privilege, because I've gotten a certain number of awards, I have a a day job, I can, you know, I'm not dependent on that money for my life.
3: I'll feel disappointed, like anybody like, Oh, damn, you know, Oh, we could really use that money. But I kind of am like, Oh, there's, there's a reason that I don't know. There's a reason that this that I'm not getting this. Other than that only so many people can get grants. And now there've been a couple of times when I was really like, oh, I thought this was right up the alley. And there was a project I did, I think it was like almost 10 years ago. And it had all this community engaged work that we were doing in conjunction with developing this work I did around food. And I was working with a theater in San Francisco And we applied to a foundation that was looking to fund the thing that we were going to do. You know, we're like, oh, my God, this is and this grant will just like really cover a large part of what we're trying to do. And we didn't get it. And we were like, what? And so the executive director at the time was helping me write it, you know, said, I'm going to I'm going to go talk to them. And she talked to them, they were like, oh, we didn't believe you were going to do all that. (laughs) And we actually did. We actually did. We actually did more. I don't think they said it was too good to be true or something, but basically along the lines of like, oh, yeah, we didn't think that that was going to act. You were going to be able to do that.
4: Oof. Yeah, that story really gets to me. The worst feedback I ever got from a grant rejection was, the panel wasn't sure how you would realize the project. I screamed because literally my one and only job description in life is that I realize projects. It feels like we get mixed messages from funders. On the one hand, they say, dream big, knowing that in the end, we'll probably have to shrink our ambitions down. But Amara says, don't despair.
3: But we need to keep doing that regardless. Like, yeah. it, you know what I mean? Like... Otherwise, what we'll do is say, oh, you don't really mean it, so I'm going to keep fitting in your box. I'm all about getting out of the binary. It's not either this or that. We need to be able to withstand or endure what it means to be in the instability of there might be occasions when I know that if I just tweak this language, even if I'm not 100% around I I don't agree with needing to do this, but it's more about, you know, pick your battles and also that we must dream big. Otherwise, that feeling of, you know, constant you're applying for things and not getting them and you're being told to dream big and then you do and then they, you know, turn you down and this happens multiple times, if we don't find another way to like hold true to our work, like we can't shift this You know what i'm saying like we we're not going to shift this by continuing to bend and lean yeah we'll have to do that sometimes but that has to be the exception and not the rule and we have to insist on on how this funding world works we have to insist on that it's not humane or equitable and to keep pushing them to do differently
4: My name is Eric Larson. I'm a performance maker living in Minneapolis, and I wonder if you're aware of Minnesota's arts funding situation. It's pretty fascinating. Basically, we get hella funding in part because Sheila Smith at Minnesota Citizens for the Arts lobbied with Enviro folks to pass a combined bill that supports ecological conservation and the arts. I run a little, unincorporated, non nonprofit company I created to support my work, and with the State Arts Board and Regional Arts Board grants, I expect to receive 55000 in public funding in 2022. I got 35000 this year, but they've increased grant amounts this next year due to COVID. I'm 27. I feel like people outside the state and inside, to be honest, don't realize how vastly different this is from the rest of the country. Cat's out of the bag now, Eric. I looked up that Sheila Smith you talked about and whoa, yes. Now we are all going to move to Minnesota. I asked Cynthia, given her time in the field, if she'd noticed a change in the population of who is getting funding now.
1: I see way more faces of color than I've ever seen before, and you know, there's a part of me that is very happy about that because those faces deserve to be there. There is the part of me that is concerned that um That is a trend which, you know, depending on the political, social, historical next moment is very tenuous. I don't want folks to think of it as the kind of affirmative action of funding um, and that these people only got it because of this political moment that we're in, because these people deserve to have been there all along um, and think of it instead as reparative. So yeah, I it, you know, I have seen difference. I have a, a ridiculous story. I was on a panel a couple of years ago, a Dance Studies Association panel, and a young man stood up and was complaining at the end. We were there were a bunch of us there talking about master's programs in in choreography dance across the country, and he stood up and was asking like, "Well, what is the what are these programs going to help young choreographers to do?" because, you know, now he noticed that Matt doesn't fund white people anymore. And so he was, and he was complaining and I just had had enough. And I said, I just need you to understand that the way that you're feeling right now, people of color have been feeling for many, many years with regard to funding across the country. So I'm sorry that you feel aggravated about it but there is a balance that's being tipped that is very necessary. So you might be without some funding for a minute, but there have been many, many artists who have been without funding for a very long time for the imbalance that happened in the other, other
4: direction. I asked Amara if she thought that the efforts funders are making towards diversity, equity, and inclusion are sincere. And my apologies, this audio is a little fuzzy at times.
3: I wouldn't stand in judgment of somebody's sincerity, but more like, do you have the endurance necessary for what it's going to take? Because that kind of deep cultural shift that has to happen is huge and so uncomfortable. Like, okay, well, so on our list to do is diversity, equity, inclusion workshop check. Okay. And, It's not going to be solved with a one-time workshop. We know this, but I don't think that they understand the upheaval that has to happen. And coupled with that is that it's not just about how you're gonna have to unpack your own internalized stuff, but also be willing to be in the unknown. And that's not how capitalism operates at all. Like they'd be like, be innovative, but know what you're gonna do. What the fuck? Like, that's some bullshit. That's the thing that you're talking about around the dream big. But do something that I can recognize, right? No, we have to be willing to be in the dark around this. The, the creation of a society that's inequitable, it didn't start, you know, we can look back 400 years to the founding fathers of this country, but this has been a larger project even before of like creating these systems of inequity and how many hundreds and thousands, maybe years in Europe that this was happening, how we not going to do that in a diversity, equity and inclusion workshop. You know what I mean? Like we have to think like that. It's like, oh no, this, is a, this has been thousands of years project, you know, that I believe started with the advent of patriarchy So you gotta be in it for the long haul. You gotta be willing to, okay, we're gonna make a cultural shift in this foundation that maybe none of us lives to see when it truly is realized, but that we're committed nonetheless. And that's huge cultural shift.
4: And finally, at the end of each of my conversations with the artists, Rosie, Cynthia, Amara, and Antonio, I asked them what they wished were different. What sort of changes they would like to see in terms of funding?
6: Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a way to support an artist's life versus um, going piece by piece? It's like, you know, constantly like, like on a hamster wheel, trying to prove that you are still relevant or that you have something to say when that has been like it's clear. Miami has a wonderful wonderful training programs and we produce phenomenal artists like i just like the work here better than everybody else <laughs> it's like the work being made here the dancing that's happening here it's so amazing but We don't necessarily have the best track record for keeping artists here. And when I look over time, you know, who stays and who doesn't stay and what's the prices that they pay and who has access to continue to dance full-time or continue to make work full-time, it's very challenging. And those statistics are pretty freaking bleak, you know? So a lot of artists leave. More sad than that, a a lot of artists struggle with having families. And the choices that have to be made when you have a family and you have to support a family, and what that does to your career as a dancer. So I think to myself, like, man, wouldn't it be cool if those artists that are making amazing work and that are checking all the list, you know, getting the national recognition, you know, doing the work with the community, you know, diverse, beautiful ensembles of people working for them, creating jobs, had support to stay. What if it was like the bigger organizations that was like, here's a fund that you can apply to, to buy a freaking house. Here's a fund that you can apply to support the work of touring mothers so that artists can stay, artists that are amazing artists can live. And I'm not even saying like live well, I'm just saying just like live in this place and still be able to make work. And this is coming from the most privileged, probably choreographer in Miami who's probably getting the most support and the most funding and the most national recognition. And I still am struggling to make my life and still, you know, obviously have that. I don't know if you've had this like every six months, you're like, will I ever have a family? Could I ever have a home? You know, is the price of this life a little too high?
1: One of the things for me has been that I feel like there was a flash moment when a number of the powers that be realized that it wasn't that I was failing at imitating white artists aesthetics. It was that I actually had another set of values and aesthetics at play. And I think that moment was key. And so if that realization happened much sooner in the funding community, perhaps there would be a different way of thinking about what people are doing as opposed to presuming it from a deficit, a place of deficit. Oh, these artists, they're not as good creatively or aesthetically um, as opposed to what are the aesthetics that they're operating from?
3: There's enough money for all of us to get what we need. There's enough. It's just, we're just not getting it. There's enough money for everybody to get what they need. Everybody. And so a friend and curator and art person, um, Ashara Ekundayo, she says, artists are first responders. And I think that artists can perform a kind of first response in terms of, you know, responding artistically to whatever's going on. If we are the forward thinkers, if we're the, you know, if we we are part of the visionary team <laughs> of people that are like imagining what it could be, then let us, you know, let, like, listen to us, (laughs) listen and believe us when we say, you know, believe that this work, believe that all of our work is important. Believe that art is really, you know, is, is, is necessary. We have never been without art. So nobody knows like, oh, could you live without art? You've never had to you've never had to value artists and pay us pay all of us even like the art that you don't like pay those artists because you know what we like is it's subjective it's it's so individual and there should be room for all of it
0: we should all get something out of the pot my fantasy is that we can all receive a portion enough to survive in this, especially in times like this.
4: In the last few years, Antonio's been traveling to Peru to study plant medicine at a spiritual center run by an indigenous family. Like, I mean, at the end, we all fucking connected,
0: and, and we forget about this. And, and I feel like this is one of the things like, that I have learned from the indigenous people and from their beliefs. It's like, if you go into a forest, the forest is connected with like all the trees that are there, the roots and the, the microorganism are all connected to themselves. And when something happened to one of them, when one of them is either dying or have a disease or have anything, they actually bring nutrients to that tree and they support the life uh, of that particular tree. And also they send information to all the forest, like to tell them like, yo, this tree is suffering from this. Let's help them, but also let's keep them alive. And I just feel like we kind of have forgotten about that within all communities. Like, it doesn't matter gender and race and and color and shapes. Like, I feel like we all deserve to be supported by each other. And we forgot that.
4: heard so many different circumstances today. It was dizzying where so many people trying to navigate the same system which itself is an array of organizations with different timelines, different applications different expectations that often change from one year to the next. There's not a lot of space for the idiosyncrasies of how artists work, so there's a kind of rigidity to it. But at the same time, it's also a kind of free-for-all. A Wild West survival of the fittest scenario where we're treated as if we're coming in with equal footing, but we're coming from very different places. There's no centralized anything to look to for guidance, and there's no reasonably reliable support. As artists, our lives are held together in such uneven, unstable, and unpredictable ways. But the organizations we appeal to want us to demonstrate sustainability, viability, they want to see three year operating budgets. They're asking for coherence, but we're having pretty unholistic experiences of being in a field which is not one. We invoke the term community so much. Artists say it, funders say it, presenters say it. There's a romance attached to it. But we're not a community. Everybody knows that. We're groups of communities, and within that, there are funded artists and unfunded artists. Personally, I hate when the word community is conjured to celebrate resilience, because to me, it really feels like a smokescreen for saying, well, we really don't see this funding situation changing, and those of us holding the purse strings, we definitely aren't going to change. But isn't the dance community inspiring? It is. I won't deny it. I sit in awe and in respect for the voices we heard from today. And I know that beyond them, There are many, many more. I raise my water bottle to you. To every dance artist who has managed a ridiculous schedule to make it work, who's woken up early to teach that class or who stayed up late to finish cleaning tables at the restaurant, who's gotten on the train carrying five bags of overly heavy shit to bring to rehearsal that you're gonna have to carry back home the same day who's stayed up on the weekends to finish yet another grant, who's done that while holding a baby in their arms, who's gotten to the theater and realized it's not accessible, they lied, who gets lost imagining ideas for their next piece while walking down the street to work, who hears the call and creates community around it, who massages 10 clients in a day to give their dancers cash on Monday morning, who stays while they watch others leave. I fucking love you. But this shit's hard. I don't know what's going to turn it around exactly, but I know that this isn't just as simple as readjusting your sense of self-worth. That can be part of it, sure, but we're also talking about a system of inequity entrenched within an even larger system of inequity. So what's it going to take, I wonder? Like everything else inside of the capitalist reality we're living in, it feels like there just aren't enough hours in the day to imagine coming together as this conglomeration of communities to change things. But, as I've learned again and again, whenever I'm grousing about something, there's usually a bunch of people who actually are already doing something about it, and probably have been for a while. I'm not the first person to think about this stuff. So in episodes coming down the pike, we'll be hearing from people who are changing the field, and you'll find out how you can support them so that we can move forward collectively toward necessary change. In our next episode, we'll be talking to funders to hear how they feel about some of the problems we heard about today, the challenges that they face, and how they're navigating this global reckoning around capitalism and the economic disparity it has wrought be sure to tune in because it should be a super fun listen. (laughs) But once again, it'll be a minute before we get to that episode. Okay, not a minute, more like a month. Yeah, I know, a month is a long time to wait, but hey, I'm in grad school and I got shows and I gotta keep up with my homework and it's a lot. In the meantime, feel free to go back and listen to all of the episodes and Parse out these subliminal messages. Miguel is so fundable. Are you for Sale is supported by the National Performance Network's Storytelling Fund, Brown University Arts Initiative, Dance NYC's Dance Advancement Fund, and Creating New Futures, and thank you for all that support. This episode was recorded and produced on Lenape Land in the area currently referred to as Brooklyn. Our managing producer is Michelle Fletcher. Thanks again for your cameo, Michelle. Our production assistants are Jake Cedar. Cameron Stafford and Kirsten Pardo. And a million thanks to Amara Tabor Smith, Antonio Ramos, Cynthia Oliver, and Rosie Herrera for speaking with me. And thank you to Shannon Stewart, Jesse Young, Tania Markhart, Kate Watson Wallace, Eric Larson, and Emily Mast. I really appreciated your contributions, and I'm sorry I couldn't include everyone who called or wrote in. <laughs> And I hope that everybody listening gets to see and support all of these artists' work. I record the interviews and I produce the podcast, write most of the script with invaluable help and additions from Michelle Fletcher. I made the theme song, plus any music you heard that wasn't made by somebody else. The title of this podcast comes from a line in Morgan Parker's poem, Welcome to the Jungle. You can learn more about who you heard from today and read a transcript of the episode at our website, areyouforsalepodcast.com. Where you can also donate to support the continuation of the podcast. We would really appreciate it. Please subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you got to us from and follow us on Instagram at Are You For Sale Podcast. And if you feel inspired to, send us a message at Are You For Sale Podcast at gmail.com. It can just be love or suggestions, gossip, the email of your close, close friend who wants to give me a book deal or sign me to their label or underwrite the production costs of this podcast through their family foundation that only funds podcasts about arts funding. Greenlight my dramedy for Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max, Apple TV, Amazon, no, Paramount, Again? Disney plus me. Why not? Think of me as a new Avenger. Wakanda forever! Until next time, stay weird. Make fucking art, you guys. Stay blessed. Not stressed. Adios, everyone. Why do you feel about government funding? It doesn't
3: exist. (laughs) What are
6: you talking about? How do I feel? (laughs) Where? What are you talking about? (laughs) Tell me. Tell me who they are.